0: Welcome to the Thanksgiving episode of the SNR Podcast. I'm your host, Salima Ismail. There's something that every person who is associated with Safe and Reliable is grateful for this year. And what we are grateful for is Michael Leonard. Of course we are thankful for him for being the wonderful, wise, and compassionate person he is, but we are also so, so thankful for his recovery from an intense case of COVID-19 earlier this year. Michael has graciously agreed to share his experience and the lessons he's learned along the way. So please enjoy this very special episode.
1: late February and early March of this year, as we were seeing more and more evidence of Corona spreading, a lot of internal discussion within our group as to how to migrate our clients from a high touch kind of care model to more remote support. And I actually, my last trip was to the east coast to washington dc to do exactly that with a few clients i was trying to be extremely careful i had hand sanitizer i was staying in hotels that were virtually empty trying to stay away from people and kind of last trip was to get home and ironically i got done early on the thursday first week of March. and rather than taking my direct flight home to denver i got a flight that routed me through chicago and kind of upgraded so i could be away from people but i didn't Know, was that the U.S. government had threatened to basically prohibit travel from Europe. And as a result, there was a huge panic. Tens of thousands of people came into Dallas Airport, came into O'Hare Airport on that day. Clearly, news reports that a number of those people actually were sick and had fevers, and the airlines just told them to get on the airplane and go home.
0: Michael arrived home feeling great on Thursday night. He even went to the gym on Friday. Then, things started to change.
1: Saturday, I started to develop kind of a sore throat, a little bit of a fever, which developed into kind of a cough, a chest cold, and fever for the next 10 days. So I think I was energetically pretty normal for the first 10 days of being sick. And in fact, I was every day on the rowing machine and row 1,000 meters hard and was able to maintain kind of the same pace. Day 11, by Meg's description, I was pretty lethargic and laid on the couch all day. I don't think I realized how sick I was. I went to one of the local hospitals the night of day 11 and, and tried to get a COVID test, and I said I might have a little bit of pneumonia, put me on antibiotics, but they weren't testing anybody who wasn't being admitted to the hospital. Day 12, I just fell off the cliff, and I think maybe one of the things that, frankly, saved my life was my son, Matthew, drove to Colorado Springs an hour away to get me a little pulse oximeter to check my oxygen levels. My oxygen level, which is normally 96 or 98%, had gone to 90%. And my wife said, Why don't you walk up the driveway? We have a long thousand foot driveway that's uphill. And I walked about halfway up and my oxygen saturation went to 70%, which is pretty alarming. When we literally got in the car, drove to the University of Colorado. And the scary thing was I continued to have an alarmingly low oxygen level. Normally we'll have an oxygen level of 90 to 100. And I had an oxygen level of 40, which borders on kind of life-threatening.
0: Michael arrived at the hospital and knew he needed to
1: act quickly. I walked into the emergency department and they were partitioning between COVID and non-COVID. And I said, I think I have COVID. And they pointed me that direction. And there was a physician standing there who turned out to be an anesthesiologist. And I was in kind of save my life mode. And what I really didn't want was them to say, you know, you're fine. Go sit over here. And that was kind of the usual, what's wrong with you? And I said, well, I can't breathe. And I said, I really can't breathe. And I said, I'm an anesthesiologist and you need to be intubated.
0: That got the doctor's attention. Michael was taken in right
1: away. All I really remember was they laid me down and I sent a text to my wife, Meg, that literally said, I will be coming home. Apparently they tried increasing levels of supplemental oxygen for a couple hours and then realized they couldn't oxygenate me and put a breathing tube in me and put me on a ventilator. I was kind of like Rip Van Winkle. The world went away for 35 or 36 days. But by all accounts, I came pretty close to nine.
0: And this is in no way an exaggeration. A lot of serious events were happening to Michael in quick succession.
1: The critical care ICU doctors would call my wife in the morning and say, well, he made it through the night. I had multi-organ failure, I had terrible acute respiratory distress syndrome, my lungs were whited out, my kidneys failed, a variety of other things were going wrong. I think what almost did me in was there are two phases of a corona infection, and in the first phase is when your body produces interferon and chemical signals that will modulate the infection, and corona interferes with that, it's called the cytokine storm, is when your body really reacts and mind dramatically overreacted. I just went to war with corona. Sadly, my lungs and kidneys and everything else was in the middle of that. There's a test called a D-dimer, which indicates your tendency to form blood clots, and they like to see that under 500. Mine was 140,000. My immune system was on fire.
0: One of the solutions that Michael's medical team thought would be useful was a transfusion of covalescence plasma. However, they needed to figure out a way to source it.
1: What my family describes as, I like think a couple of weeks into it, getting a transfusion with cosmolescent plasma from somebody who'd been previously infected was raised. And really, to the credit of the blood bank people at Denver Children's, the blood bank director said, if you can arrange it, we'll do it, which was remarkable because the easy thing for them to say was, we haven't done it, we're not going to do it.
0: But they were willing to help, and Michael's family and friends rallied.
1: My daughter put out a message on Facebook and got several thousand responses. I had many people who knew me who said I'll fly to Denver and donate. We had people I'd never met who said they would fly to Denver and donate. Apparently, they were able to find a donor locally. Ironically, everything at that point had to go to Dallas to be tested by the FDA. And I finally got the specimen on the airplane down there. It literally came back on a flight in the middle of the night. And if you want a reflection of the goodness of people, somebody from the hospital went to the airport and literally picked it up at the airplane. when it Two or three in the morning to be ready to process it so I could get it for breakfast. You know, the data on convalescent plasmas helps some, doesn't help others. I think the people that took care of me and my family is firmly convinced that that's what turned the corner for me. They said prior to that, nothing was working, nothing was getting better. I did end up getting dectamethasone because my immune system was still on fire and the literature is conflicting about whether that's a bad idea in the middle of ARDS, but they ended up giving me steroids, which I think was helpful, but it was a slow, kind of gradual process. Ironically, being an anesthesiologist who's anesthetized 10,000 patients and put breathing tubes in them and woken them up and worked in ICUs, et cetera, every time they tried to weed me off the ventilator, I would fight the breathing tube. And I guess I have a very vigorous gag reflex. And finally, one of the intensivists said, you know, I think we need to put a trach in because we won't irritate his throat. We can get him off the ventilator. Well, none of the surgeons wanted to trach somebody with COVID. And so the critical care people finally found a surgeon who would do it. But he says, if we can't get it Friday, we're going to have to wait another week So there was always something that might not happen or could go wrong. But in fact, it did happen. And two days later, I was off the ventilator. I remember waking up in the ICU and one of the critical care physicians was sitting next to my bedside and he said, you know, I think we're going to hold your dialysis today because it looks like your kidneys are getting better. And I was like, oh, I'm on dialysis? He's like, yeah, you're on dialysis. And I'm like, why am I on dialysis? And started talking about countercurrent concentration mechanisms. and We had a little doctor to doctor chat on kidney physiology. I told him I would strongly encourage my kidneys to go with the program, which thankfully they did.
0: Michael's hospitalization was incredibly stressful on his family, compounded by the fact that they could not physically visit. But they worked with the hospital team to get creative.
1: And I have to say that people in the hospital, the University of Colorado, were fabulous. Their teamwork, their collaboration, their communication with my family, they always took time. They were amenable to putting a ring camera in my room, which my son Got on the hospital Wi-Fi so my family could talk to me through that. So my daughter's is, is wonderful and a surgical resident at the University of Utah, and she's pregnant. And so still on the ventilator. And I'm not quite sure how they got the audio to me, and maybe it was an iPad, but she told me that she was having a baby girl. And my family said I looked like I had some recognition on my face, but that's the one thing I remembered when I woke up. And now she's had a beautiful little baby girl, Hazel.
0: Even though Michael woke up with that memory, there was still some concern about his cognitive functions.
1: There was a lot of concern. I'd had very low levels of oxygen for a while, and the question of ultimately whether I'd had injury to in my brain from the hypoxia or low oxygen levels and been real reason to, to be scared about that once i'd actually gotten off the ventilator i was facetiming with my wife meg and at one point she says well you you seem pretty tired you know shall we talk again in the morning and and i said uh yeah why don't we reconvene in the morning and she was like oh my goodness reconvene like a multiple syllable word his brain is working but there was a lot of concern of you know what my cognitive abilities would be and in fact When I got out of the hospital, my daughter politely, gently interrogated me for half an hour and then pronounced, oh, my goodness, it's you. You're there.
0: So even though Michael woke up without any cognitive issues, his physical abilities were a different story
1: day 40, they arranged to kind of have me stand at the window and wave out the window at my wife and children and my dog. And I literally was so weak after 40 days in the bed that I couldn't stand up by myself. There were two people that were physically assisting me to stand up. They kindly arranged for me to Go to the inpatient rehab unit, which is part of the COVID, part of the hospital. And I think it made a tremendous difference. It's a remarkably humbling experience to go, you know, somebody who's in the gym four days a week and and, uh, able to keep up with people that are 10 or 15 years younger than I am. And and then, uh, you know, working to be able to stand up.
0: Fortunately, Michael had a strong and supportive team behind him.
1: The therapists I had were fabulous and I had three hours of physical and occupational therapy every day. I had to learn all these things, like how to stand up with a walker was a major achievement to be able to walk to the bathroom, taking a shower by myself, which I could do by the end of eight days. You know, they're very practical. We're going to climb three or four stairs. We're going to practice how you get up off the floor if you fell. And thankfully, I had a little bit of push-up strength left. I mean, they had me working with two-pound weights which felt heavy. It was like crazy. I'd been doing 30, 40, 50-pound weights before I went in the hospital, and I'm just learning to walk. It was interesting. They have to test you to show you need oxygen the day before you go home, which is a little nerve-wracking because there was no way I could have gone home without it. A wonderful physical therapist. uh, And he said, okay, we're going to make you hypoxic. Come over here or drop your oxygen level. Come over here and climb these stairs. And then the people from respiratory therapy showed up with their fancy pulse ox and they marched me up a set of four stairs three or four times without oxygen and my oxygen just plummeted. And they're like, well, I think you just qualified for oxygen at home.
0: Eventually, Michael got to a point where he could leave the hospital.
1: One of the considerations before I went home is I, I was seriously anemic. And they tend to take a lot of blood for lab tests and other things. And you tend not to make red blood cells terribly well when you're critically ill. But, you know, they asked me, you know, who do you want to, to walk you out, which apparently is a kind of an honor for people to take care of you. And I Chose the two physical therapists and occupational therapists I had. And they came in and they said, well, you know, we're going to take you in a wheelchair, but we're going to walk to the elevator. And what they didn't tell me is as we walked around the corner was there were easily a hundred people, doctors, nurses, therapists, you name it, who had been involved in my care lined up in the hallway clapping for me and cheering, which, which actually kind of reduced me to tears. And all I could say to them was, You saved my life. I will be eternally grateful, and I am.
0: This is the part where we'd be tempted to say, and Michael returned home fully recovered and lived happily ever after. But that's not quite right. There was still more healing to be done.
1: Got home, wasn't sure if I was going to be able to stay at 8,000 feet with the elevation and 75% of the oxygen you have at sea level. Having to use oxygen at rest, oxygen to sleep, oxygen to move, and started to acclimatize over a couple of days and just slowly started to get stronger. I've lost 31 pounds, mainly muscle. When I looked in the mirror, I was like, geez, who's that guy? And I just got really intentional about working wonderful physical therapist, Victoria, come to my house once or twice a week. I was doing laps with a long oxygen tubing in my in my house and you know, got to walk a thousand feet and then up to a mile in a day. I had to realize that it wasn't gonna be a sprint. It was gonna be a slow, steady kind of marathon and And I had to take care of myself, I had to eat, I had to take naps, I had to rest. My acupuncturist, who's very skilled, said he had never seen anybody so energetically depleted. So I just really had to kind of pace myself. I have two physicians, dear friends who've had critical illnesses, both traumatic, both called me up and they said, we're type A people, you think you're just going to get out there and charge at it and be back in two or three months, but you're not. You just got to be slow and steady. And they were absolutely correct. Probably took me three months before I could spend the day off oxygen at 8,000 feet and kind of navigate around the house and go climb a flight of stairs, get in my car, go out and do stuff. Now transition to outpatient physical therapy with Jamie, who's wonderful. She's not only a skilled physical therapist but also one of my CrossFit coaches. And so I go see her once a week in the gym between classes and. And she's kind of pushed me to the point that I can now do little mini workouts off oxygen, resting a minute or two in between exercises. Kind of went through three months of pulmonary rehabilitation at the University of Colorado, and twice a week, and they would push me for max effort training, 45 seconds, 90 seconds of semi rest on a standing elliptical, and by the end of that, I was able to go 45 minutes. Uh, continuously with really a whisper of oxygen. If I can now hike slowly and steadily at six or 7,000 feet of elevation and not running up the hills, but being adequately or well oxygenated and able to do things, able to get on a Peloton stationary bike and ride for half an hour on room air and stay oxygenated. I've been given kind of a 90% probability of having normal lung function at a year.
0: It's clear that Michael is determined to get better, but I believe the following story really demonstrates his tenacity and
1: persistence. One of the hallmarks of therapy is this concept of the six-minute walk. How far can somebody walk within six minutes? And the first time I did it, I mean, it was with a walker with supplemental oxygen, two or three liters, and I literally was only able to walk 350 feet in six minutes and had to sit down for about a minute and a half of that in the middle to rest. Eight days later, I almost doubled that with 600 and some feet. When I went to pulmonary rehab in June, basically five weeks after leaving the hospital, I was able to, to go 1,200 feet still on supplemental oxygen. When I finished pulmonary rehab, the middle of September. I did 2,001 feet without oxygen in six minutes. And when I finished, they said, do you know that the record for six minutes for somebody your age without lung disease is 2,012 feet? I was <laughs> like, you should have told me. I would have broken the record. Well, the good news is when I go back for pulmonary function tests in December, they want to do another six-minute walk. So uh, we will break the record.
0: Through this entire ordeal, Michael has been aware that there are people who do not take the coronavirus seriously. Here's what he has to say about that.
1: When we get on the subject of people saying it's a hoax and it's not real and it's like the flu uh, and they me angry something that almost killed you and so many people's lives who had it, who will never be the same. And, and then there are the people who are the long haulers that just have persistent symptoms and foggy brains and, you know, lots and lots of bad things that have happened. So I think what is very evident is the medical community pulled together in really an amazing fashion, but the federal response, you know, was appalling and it still is appalling. When we have political leaders in this country running around holding rallies and saying it's all a joke and you don't wear a mask and people are going to get sick and die and suffer as a result of it. So we have a lot of room for improvement.
0: Finally, I asked Michael to share his introspections and any perspectives he has developed or reaffirmed while having to endure this experience and continue the slow and steady path to recovery.
1: When I woke up and I was asleep for over a month, then the world had to come back into focus. And the first thing I had to come into focus is, where am I and what's going on here? And it took me a day or two to go, oh, I'm in an intensive care unit and I'm really sick. And so beyond that, it starts to come into focus on, you know, your family who are kind of remarkable and incredibly fortunate to have them. And then the rest of the world. The ironic thing is I am like, the prime candidate for PTSD and depression. I mean, in everybody, my internist, my pulmonologist, my therapist, they're like, you guys are like the highest risk for really having a lot of mental issues after this. And I'm like, I said, with all due respect, I'm like the happiest guy on the planet. I'm like delighted to be here. What I couldn't fix, and you know, I'll spend the rest of my life trying to make better is the agony that my wife and children friends and family went through hour-to-hour, day-to-day, when I was kind of at death's door, frankly. And, and that just was terrible. I mean, it affected them. They lived with it, you know, day-to-day, waiting for phone calls, waiting for some good news, not getting good news. As sick as I was, I probably had about a 12% chance of survival, um, which I will attribute to the unbelievable, broad support I had from lots and lots of people. Family and friends and folks I work with, my colleagues, even had friends in Nepal who had Buddhist monks and temples kind of praying for me. So a lot of good energy in in many places. It just makes you thankful for what you have every day and makes you immensely thankful for your wife, children, family, friends colleagues and realize that there's a tremendous amount of goodness in the world. And I think this brought out the best in a lot of people. I think the other thing that's kind of remarkable and struck me in being a pretty serious student of kind of culture and teamwork and leadership, I was profoundly impressed by the culture and collaboration and Frankly, respect for everybody the people who took care of me. It's kind of an ironic position to be a critical care physician who's used to taking care of people like me and then becoming one of them, which is a pretty profound and humbling experience. But I also think the ethics and kind of moral commitment of, of all the people who took care of me, the physicians, the nurses, the people who cleaned my room, et cetera, the, you know, those people walked in every day with no hesitation to take care of people like me that have a incurable disease that, frankly, has killed over a 1,000 healthcare workers. It just gives me kind of great pride for people to step up and do what's hard and do what's right. And there's no doubt that those people saved my life. It was and, and will be eternally grateful for the care they provided to me when I was sicker than anybody ever wants to be. When you realize that life is fragile or get reminded how fragile it is, and there's a finite amount of time on this earth, you want to spend your time doing things that are enjoyable and, and create value. And you don't want to spend your time with people that are going to waste it. It reaffirms for me, having been a recipient of high-quality medical care, that the work we do that's safe and reliable is, is essential. You know, there's no shortage of smart people, but once they get to a culture that's highly functioning collaborative, they, they do amazing things and they take care of the patients and they take care of each other. So it's an event that certainly changed my life, almost took my life, but I'm remarkably healthy and free of complications, remarkably so for somebody as sick as I was, and uh, uh, every day is a gift.
0: If you have any questions for Michael Leonard or any other requests, please email us at podcast at srh.care. That's all for today. The Safe and Reliable podcast was produced and edited by me, Salima Ismail. Our special Thanksgiving theme music is produced by I Speak Waves from freesound.org. Special thanks to Michael Leonard. And a very special thanks to you for tuning in. Happy Thanksgiving!